Welcome to another episode of Horrorversary. Now, th- this one's going to be interesting because we we had recorded so many episodes close back to back to back that I needed a slight breather for sanity, which I think is probably going to be one of the taglines for 2020 when we're all said and done. But the last couple episodes that we had were being done basically around the end of April, May, and here we are catching up towards the end of June. So when this comes out in July, you know, it's going to feel... I don't know if it's going to be relevant, but it's actually going to be more in tune with, you know, where we are in the world at that time. Now, if you're listening to Horrorversary for the first time, this is a very simple uh, to describe podcast, because that's how I want to keep things here. Simple and easy and just let the guests and the movies that we're talking about be the focus. But this is a podcast that celebrates horror movies, celebrating anniversaries. Now, we don't do any of the piddly. Let's, you know, get excited about year 17, about 25. No, no, no. We want to hit hard and fast with just the major milestones, the 10s, the 20s, the 30s and the 40s, the 50s, as far back as you can go. Because at any point in film history that there's been movies, there's been horror movies to talk about. And sometimes maybe you want to talk about The Thing, or maybe you want to talk about um, The Serpent's Kiss, or, or maybe you want to talk about Layer of the White Worm. But there is a film that deserves the attention. And when you're looking back at some of these movies, when it hits 10, 20 years, Maybe they've lost relevance. Maybe they've gained more relevance. Maybe, you know, they were soothsayers and they were able to predict things that are happening in the future. And so on the show, we like to single out a guest who chooses a film from, you know, the the many films that are going to be celebrating anniversaries that year. And then we sit down, we ask them five basic questions that are the same for every single uh, guest who comes on here. And then we just see where things go. Because while you think you might know a movie completely, looking at it through this lens kind of highlights lots of the important bits. And this week, this week is a film that is hitting its 20th anniversary that even when it came out 20 years ago was looking at things that were 20 years earlier than that. And yet it's still incredibly relevant today. And of course, we're talking about Mary, the Mary Harmon directed adaptation of Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho. Now, when you're talking about American Psycho, the first thing that comes up, of course, is Christian Bale and the narration. Lots of times when you're thinking about narration when it comes to movies, it's usually a detriment. Yet the times that it lands in this movie, it, it gives you very much an important insight. Because when you're dealing with the satire and you're dealing with the elements that that go into this film you need that other side you need that side that's mentioning that the mask is slowly slipping and oh oh no normally i get a cue that people are coming on to the show you know with with a knock which, which makes sense you know because they're going to be letting people into your office today today is different Today I've been handed something that was slipped under the door here in the office, and I, it's just, I have to describe it to you. I know that that sounds terrible to do when it comes to an audio podcast as opposed to a visual, but th- the thing that I'm looking at is stunning. It is, it just has the most perfect off-white coloring. There's just a tasteful thickness to the cardstock. And in perfect black inky letters, I can make out 
the name and the job description of our guest today. It says, Editor-in-Chief of The Pitch, Brock Wilbur. Welcome, Brock. How are you doing today? As bad as everyone else. How are you today? Uh, I, I guess we're doing okay. Um, I haven't fed any stray cats to an ATM. <laughs> I actually, uh, just before the pandemic started by like, a week before we started self-quarantining, uh, got my box of business cards for my new job here at the pitch. Uh, and it's like, <laughs> well, first, can't do anything with it. Second, we might move to a smaller office because who the fuck is coming into an office this year? Uh, and third, who wants to touch a thing that a stranger hands you anytime in 2020? So I was like, these are, it, it, it feels like the episode of The Office where uh, Ryan gets his business cards in the day that they shut down the branch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it could be far worse. You could be some, you know, demented uh, urban Johnny Appleseed who's just got your window rolled down and you're just flinging business cards at anyone you see who's willing to walk out on the street these days. I mean, I am looking for different voices around Casey and I do have a thousand of them. So who the fuck knows? (laughs) And you have the time. So you might as well. You might as well. I mean, it's people are all about avant-garde forms of marketing, right? Right. (laughs) Now. Like I mentioned, you are the editor-in-chief for The Pitch. For the people who might not be in the Kansas City area, let them know what The Pitch is. Uh, for exactly 40 years as of this month, um, The Pitch has been uh, the alt uh, paper, alt magazine of, uh, of the area. Uh, we're one of the last 20 or so remaining in the country. There's like one in Portland and one in Denver and so on and so forth. Uh, we are... One of the smallest, uh, but also um, one of the only surviving ones, uh, because uh, for some reason, from the start of the year, uh, God has picked a fight uh, with the alt uh, magazines because uh, one of ours uh, in uh, Minneapolis was burned down. Uh, earlier than that, uh, a tornado uh, destroyed ours in Nashville. Uh, like there have just been a series of, of wild events that are slowly picking us off. And so uh, we are in a tricky spot here because our entire business model depends on uh, in print, uh, print media with advertising uh, from uh, local businesses and all the businesses shut down. And then uh, the other half is from uh, events that we throw and gee, what a time. So uh, <laughs> we're, we're in a spot where we're uh, doing a lot of things to try and survive that are uh, basically week two, we came up with the idea to start selling an online coloring book of Kansas city, uh, 60 different artists contributed. And for every coloring book we sold as a PDF through our site, uh, half of the money went into a fund for the artists and half of it went to us. And we were like, okay, we, we, we raised the money to stay open for another like two weeks or so. So all, all of our work has depended on each week having a new idea that's so crazy and outside the box that it will generate some revenue uh, which means that we're just doing a bunch of things and and hoping it sticks week by week on top of constantly reporting the news. So I'm like, I you know, I, I'm out at protests writing up 10 pieces a day. And then also by night, I'm now in the coloring book publishing business. So uh, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, my uh, my 2020 has been interesting. And I started the job in January. And uh, yeah, all this hit in March. Uh, and we were almost immediately like we're going to have to stop publishing the magazine. And we've managed to keep that going. 
uh, by cutting down our page numbers to half uh, and and sort of getting them out there. But uh, there there was a depression part of my brain that was like, oh, cool, you were in charge of a thing uh, that lived for forty years, and in the first three months you fucked it. Uh, and I was like, <laughs> no way, you you didn't invent coronavirus. This isn't your fault. Uh, so yeah, leading a uh, a team of of freelance writers uh, and a couple of really spunky interns and managing to put out great content every day, great news. Uh, we, we, we report on a lot of fuckery around the city in a way that some of the, uh, the more straight-laced big boy papers won't take on. So yesterday we reported on how a, a local dinner theater uh, is doing a mixing of blacklisting and union busting while also trying to reopen a month or two before they should because they faked the data <laughs> on what they were supposed to do. And by the end of the day, they'd announced that they're uh, shutting down. I was like, look at that. I'm not trying to shut down local businesses because <laughs> my God, I need them for advertising. But also like, if you're a bad person and a bad actor, like we will come for you. And like today, the Kansas city star is reporting on it using our reporting and leaving out giant chunks about like the union busting and stuff and just sort of reporting on it as like, Oh hey, like this dinner theater is uh, going to be closed. I was like, yeah, you should mention why. Uh, and the, no one has uh, the 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 balls to do some of that stuff. So uh, we get to we get to operate in a space that's uh, a lot more uh, based in having our own fun voice than having to do the real straight laced both sides journalism. And holy shit, is that important uh, at a time like this? <laughs> Well, we, we will very much uh, let people know where they can, you know, find the, the pitch information and, and how to help you guys out in, in general. Pitchkc.com. It's got everything. So that's we'll that's we'll go into it more, like I said, at the at the end, because yeah. we have to okay. jump on to, uh, to to happier things like talk about American Psycho. Fantastic. But I'm ching. Now, the first question that we like to ask everybody, I'm going to tie into twofold because uh, as we were talking off mic and to let everybody know who maybe <clears throat> this is the first time that you're listening into the show, which thank you very much for you know taking the time to do so. But the only other time that we've done a film that's been based off of a book was a Stephen King film. And uh, it was, of course, Graveyard Shift and... Well, that's completely different than this type of beast and the type of writing and everything like that. So while the first question is traditionally, um, do you remember the first time that you saw the film after answering that question? Can you also let the audience know what it was that made you choose this film particularly? Uh, so first time I saw it was definitely uh, in college. It was my roommate's DVD and um, my freshman year roommate. And I, his name is Guy Egan III, and he was from Maine, and he owned a yacht at 18. Uh, we we shared a dorm room, and it had a visible line down the middle of the room, like in a sitcom, when brothers can't get along and have to draw a line. Uh, and my side was covered in like movie posters like Evil Dead or uh, Army of Darkness I, I, or uh, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And his side was covered in like, bags from Abercrombie and Fitch that he had cut open. So it was just beautiful people. Uh, and at the center of the room, the one thing that crossed over the line uh, was our, our shared poster of American Psycho, uh, a <laughs> film that the two of us appreciated for 
opposite reasons because we both saw the opposite uh, thing in it. He saw it as aspirational and I saw it for what it is. And we were like, all right, that's the, that's the one thing that we like together. (laughs) (laughs) And, And, uh, and, and thinking why, I mean, it is, uh, as an, as a work of adaptation, it is historically fascinating. Uh, and also a film that, I think just gets better with age and I, I think also uh, gets appreciated with age. And then as you mentioned, like sometimes films become more relevant with time and uh, uh, dear God, does this one uh, just keep getting uh, more important? <laughs> now, I, and I think it's interesting um, when you look at this film and you see the perspective of what's on the screen uh, compared to who's behind the lens, because you have a female director who is working on the screenplay with another female writer when it's, you know, um, inherently from the male viewpoint. But I feel like that's almost uh, a strength that helps elevate the movie. Yeah, I mean, I guess now we get into the history of the book and uh, and why it matters. Um so the well, book is can, written by. I mean, if, if you if you want to hold on for that just a second, because I feel I feel we're getting into something uh, deep and nitty gritty. So quickly to to tie okay. into this, uh, the second question that we always ask, and I it feels weird for a movie like American Psycho that's it's hitting the twenty year anniversary, and it's become for the last twenty years, it's one of the definitions of what a, a cult film is that that grows a cult following. Uh, but for the un- uninitiated, and as few words as possible, uh, describe the synopsis for American Psycho. Uh, a a a rich uh, Wall Street guy uh, can get away with anything that he wants to uh, in a culture where he is interchangeable with every other rich Wall Street guy. Perfect. Perfect. But but and and now um, we're going to pause for two seconds, and that's only because you could sense if you know Brock and you've listened to any of the wonderful podcasts that he does, which we'll get into on the very end of making sure that we're plugging, that you can feel the ramp up in his voice when he's going to to be throwing some stuff down. So I wanted to make sure that we took this point to pause because if you're somebody who hasn't seen the movie or hasn't read the book. Uh, you have to co- completely strip everything away and dig in deep, especially when it comes to something like American Psycho, because as he mentioned, you know, people can watch it and take two completely different things from it. That might not be what both the director or the writers intended. And in this case, the director had an interview shortly after the movie came out said that they were kind of disappointed that people weren't getting the initial message of the film. So we're going to pause right here if you haven't seen it so you can run off and then we'll continue on. Okay, we're back. I counted to two. That should be enough time that you can easily yell at Alexa, you know, yell at Siri, yell at whatever, or use your finger to to pause it. So now we'll continue. And as you were saying, when it comes to the the history of this book, oh, was that the prompt? <laughs> yeah, that that was that was the that prompt was the to prompt. kick back in. I, so I, I I I cut you off midstream and then had to try to help bring you back in. 
Okay, uh, so here's uh, here's what we have as a history. Uh, the book is written by Brett Easton Ellis, and Brett Easton Ellis became famous in 1984 uh, because he was a sophomore at college, uh, and uh, basically while on like a coked up bender in a in an introduction to writing fiction class, turned in a book uh, that eventually that was published weeks later that was called Less Than Zero, which was a book just like all of his other books about people that don't feel anything and do bad things. Uh, but it became like the hit of the, of the mid eighties, uh, and, and was the thing that both, uh, kids idolized, but also like the adults were so scared of that. It helped push. It was, it was the Marilyn Manson from 1997 of 1984. Uh, and it propelled him into this space where, uh, him and Jay McInerney who wrote a similar book, uh, in Bright Lights, Big City, and a couple of other people basically became the, the, what is, uh, what is, uh, DiCaprio's group called? The Pussy Patrol? <laughs> I'll, I'll say sure. I don't, I don't know that much. Yeah. Yeah. Him, basically. Him but, and, like, but Toby I think everybody understands. Guys, yeah. 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 Uh, they, they became the brat pack of, uh, of authors in the mid to late eighties. And they basically became the very last of of the rock star authors, because after that, it's <laughs> it's just done. They were the sort of people that like were out at the nightclubs and everyone knew who they were back when people knew authors and what they looked like. Uh, and <laughs> and they hosted like segments on MTV and like mm-hmm. so yeah, literally rock stars. Uh, and so uh, Ellis writes a couple more of these books uh, and uh to greater or lesser effect and then uh in the 90s he turns in this book uh, american psycho which is a a a dostoevskian dense tome of like 700 pages uh and 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 it's almost uncrackable and it and what it does is that uh it is written entirely from the perspective of a character named patrick bateman and patrick bateman uh is a form of sociopath with a personality disorder. And so like when Ellis was writing it, like he had a yellow sticky note on the screen at all times. It said no metaphors because Patrick Bateman cannot think in of a metaphor. Like his brain just does not function (laughs) that way. Uh, And so the book goes on uh, about a hundred, 150 pages, just sort of listing off menu items at various high end restaurants, talking Mm. about people that don't matter uh, and, and how he sort of works on, on wall street and, and just keeps making money, but doesn't really do anything like he's just, his dad got him a job, uh, and he is part of uh, a group of friends that every night go out to clubs and do drugs and, and do terrible things and, and no one cares. Uh, and so you get about like a hundred, 150 pages into this book. And then out of nowhere, there is a paragraph at the end of a chapter that just describes him inserting the, a, a live rat into the vagina of a woman so that the rat can, can, can eat her from the inside. And then it just goes back to like listing menu items at places. And so like, yeah. much like how the film functions, things slip. And and they start to slip in very subtle ways, and and you never see it coming, and then all of a sudden it's just there, and then it's gone again, and no one has to think about it or talk about it, and there are there are no repercussions. Uh, and so, the the book 
descends into just a constant stream of murdering mostly women, uh, but mm. also these weird asides uh, and and slips of sanity in other ways. Like two of my favorite scenes in the book uh, that aren't in the movie. Uh, one of them is that Patrick Bateman lives in the same building as Tom Cruise. And so they share an <laughs> elevator. And so like at one point, Patrick Bateman compliments him on his acting in the film Cocktail, <laughs> uh, which I'm just like, that would have been a wonderful moment where, where, where the money would have been there. Uh, and, uh, and then there's another moment where him and his friends go to a U2 concert uh, and he has front row seats and Bono slowly morphs into the actual devil and starts talking directly to him. And I'm like, once again, if we could have had Bono turn into Satan in this movie, <laughs> would have been incredible. Uh, anyway, the film, uh, the book releases, uh, and it becomes a huge bestseller because it uh, attracts the attention uh, it, in, an, in a greater way than ever before of parents, of feminists, of, of people around the country that demand it be banned. Like it is, it is the biggest call in the '90s for the banning of a book, uh, and that yeah. just gives it so much fucking attention. So I think a lot of people bought it and uh, probably weren't sure what they were dealing with because it is just well, like the, the 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 crazy the the crazy thing that I was reading is that uh, in of course this is ninety one when the book's coming out that a couple mm -hmm. months before it comes out there's a couple chapters that end up leaking to the press and that got Simon and Schuster to decide that they were going to can their initial release of the book. And then they had to sell it to another company. And then because of all the press that's made, that's what partially helps it sell. So in like an oral history of, uh, uh, the book that came out, I think a couple of years ago for the 20th, 25th anniversary, uh, one of the guys who was an executive at Simon and Schuster was like, yeah, we made this other company millions of dollars. I, I always love uh, hearing from an executive when they admit like their their biggest fuck up. A guy I worked for in Hollywood when he was a very young producer uh, passed on idle hands, and to this day <laughs> he uh, he regrets that. He's like every time I'm in Best Buy, it's in a five dollar bin, and I know it's still selling all the time because that's a, a cult film. And he's like, nah, I I made a lot of films much worse than that that no one remembers. It's like okay. <laughs> That's a, it's a, it's a, that's a pretty low level one, but like, I understand how that tortures you a little bit. Uh, so anyway, uh, do, 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 uh, the, the book gets optioned and these producers pick it up and the producers, uh, take it to Mary, uh, who their idea here is that like, what we're going to do is we're going to give this book that is like the Bible of misogyny to a feminist. And that way, when the movie comes out, no one can criticize us for the misogyny. And it was like, it, they, 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 they weren't good people, but what they did wound up being good. And so they, they give it to Mary, and uh, she starts auditioning people. Uh, Billy Crudup was offered the role at one point, uh, and he passed on that. Uh, Ewan McGregor and Edward Norton were both considered. Uh, and, and Jared Leto actually auditioned. Uh, and uh, she said no to him, uh, but then offered him a different role in the movie in, in, in the role of Paul Allen. And he immediately said yes. And everyone involved was like, I've never seen that happen in casting. Like <laughs> that somebody with <laughs> a man 
and then was offered a side part and was like, absolutely, just get me involved in this. Because also, this is definitely the sort of thing that Jared Leto just fucking lives for. So it's wonderful that he gets murdered. Uh, so uh, Chris, Chris <laughs> I was going to say, I think, I think that's what? one of like the most most short and positive stories about Jared Leto there's ever been. I mean, it, it, there is sort of a, a renaissance uh, for rewatching movies that have Leto in them and getting to watch him die. Uh, Panic Room uh, <laughs> is fucking great to me because he's in like white cornrows and and uh, he has uh, he's his sidekick is is a uh, very powerful black actor who just spends uh, the in, in Forrest Whitaker, uh, who just spends the entire movie looking at Leto. Like he fucking hates him, not just like in character, but like as a person, like the the white boy cornrows or something. But like every line he delivers, even when there's no reason for him to react like that, Whitaker just like gives him this look like I just I can't believe I'm in this scene with you. Uh, so uh, uh, Pat, uh, Patrick Bateman is still being cast and uh, and Christian Bale walks into the room. And within the first few minutes, uh, Mary is like done. This is Patrick Bateman. I will accept nobody else. But the producers, uh, these couple of dudes, uh, were like, ah, you know, I, I, he's like a nobody. I don't want this. So uh, Heron uh, was, was starting to get into pre-production. And behind her back, uh, the producers were still talking to people. And the person that they got was DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio, just after Titanic. Uh, and like Mary was like, I do not think DiCaprio is right for the role. And they were like, the guy was just in fucking Titanic. If we put him in this movie, this little fucking indie movie with no money, we're going to make bank. We will make bank forever. It's Leonardo DiCaprio at the height of his career. Uh, and so, like, she was like, I won't make that movie. So they fired her because she was sticking up for the actor that she had chosen. <laughs> so they went around town talking to other directors uh, and some of the directors that they talked to included Tim Burton, which just imagine a Tim Burton movie uh, ver- version of this, like and, and the Danny Elfman score that would have come with it. Uh, and and then they also talked to like Stuart Gordon from Reanimator. And eventually they, they got Oliver fucking Stone, which you know, also can you imagine the Oliver Stone version of this? Like <laughs> it, it would have oh, it would have been out of fucking control. Anyway, it was Oliver Stone and Leonardo DiCaprio. And then Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio was at, I believe, a basketball game and feminist icon, icon Gloria Steinem approached him and said, you cannot do this movie. <laughs> the entirety of your fan base right now is 15 year old girls. It is misogynistic trash. You cannot introduce them to this because they will watch it if you are in it. And Leonardo DiCaprio was like, Gloria Steinem, you are correct. So he drops out. Oliver Stone drops out. Uh, and the producers come back to Heron and they're like, all right, you can do this with your guy. <laughs> She's like, okay. So they make this movie that is an exceptionally low budget movie. Like so many scenes uh, are, are just, they've moved the furniture around. Uh, a lot of the exterior shots are, they just walked around until they found a building where the right light was on and somewhere in, in New York city, like everything is terribly like green screened in certain parts. Uh, and they put together something that is very, very different than what Brett Easton Ellis saw and what the rest of the huh. world saw, which is that they create uh, this sort of feminist masterpiece about this insecure man uh, who is interchangeable from all other men 
who profits from a system where he's even aware, like he doesn't need to do anything except sit in his office and do crossword puzzles. Uh, and, and that he can kill anyone he wants to anywhere, anytime, and will never ever face repercussions for it. Uh, and so as the film goes on and as these things, uh, sort of unwind, they unwind in a way that at some point you start to realize this is basically almost an action movie or fantasy. Like there is one point where he fires a gun at a police car and <laughs> the police car yeah. explodes into a ball of flame, like an action movie. And even Patrick Bateman looks at the gun, like how did that happen? Uh, so he goes on a wild killing spree and, uh, and then when he tries to confess to it, uh, a number of things happen. First, everyone laughs at him because they think he's too much of a dweeb. Secondly, uh, people think it's him trying to do a joke and it's just not a very funny joke. And some people, it seems like probably believe him, but they don't, they don't care. And, and then a, a much larger turn that keeps happening is that, uh, throughout the movie, uh, a number of people are mistaken for other people in this group. And at some point mm -hmm. they, they talk about him as if he was actually a different person the entire time or everyone knows him as something, including his lawyer. His lawyer doesn't know him by the name that he knows himself by. So everyone uh, is just sort of the same guy with the same haircut, with the same glasses in the same suit, and nothing nothing fucking matters. So the, the movie yeah. ends with him sort of reflecting on like, I will I will never uh, I will never have to face responsibility for anything. And and the fact that I, I don't face that responsibility actually makes makes me angrier uh and mm -hmm. and so it, it it ends in his head and it ends with these series of things where no one can seem to put together the pieces that would indicate that any of these murders actually happened uh and so what you are left with the question that that some people get and some people do not and the reason that guy egan the third could like this movie and i could uh, <laughs> for different ways uh is that the the major question is did he do all these murders and and society just let him get away with it as and and will forever because that's what men are allowed to do or is he just this fucking dweeb who made all of this up in his head and that's why none of it tracks or goes anywhere like this is this is a fantasy world that he lives in and that he sucks so much and it is so boring that like he had to do this to himself because otherwise he has nothing. Uh, yeah. And like it is, it is, it is probably uh, the latter, but the first one is also a good reading of it. Actually, if you think of it in terms of like just rich men will never face repercussions for this. And so you watch how like this mattered in the eighties, this matters in the two thousands in 2008 with the market crash. Uh, now with like record unemployment, like the rich will always stay rich. There's nothing you can do. And especially right now in this time of, uh, a new civil rights movement, uh, the idea that a white man can kill all these people, including a black man and, and that no one cares and no one will ever care is one of those things that you're like, okay, it is once again, painfully relevant for us to discuss American yeah. psycho. And it, it, it stands in as an indictment of Reaganomics. It stands in as an indictment of a whole group of people. It's an indictment of New York and obviously as an American psycho of, of our country as a whole. And there are so many different metaphors that it, it can apply to. 
which is great for a book where the character literally could never think in metaphors. Uh, so yeah. it, 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 it's, it is such a better piece of art than the book is. And it makes mm. Brett Easton Ellis look so much better for it. Uh, and a woman had to come be the one to do that. Uh, so every part of it is good for me. Yeah. And I, I think that's, what's great in, in discussing it. And uh, I mean, first of all, we can take a moment and give Brock a, a round of applause for, for getting through all that and, and not passing out, not just the importance of the film, but then the history of it. Cause I think it really goes to, to, to show a long way why this movie is, is continually being, um, you know, brought up and, and why, uh, out of the majority of the films that are are getting a 20 year anniversary this year, whether they're horror, whether they're not the one that people are are writing about on all different places is American Psycho because of the fact that, you know, it's set in the 80s, but it's being written in or, you know, it's being uh, made in 2000. And here we are in 2020. And yet doesn't matter what what fucking you know decade we're in that it's pertinent for the things that it's discussing and and just all the little nuances that that are in the films and the fact that and it's also have... one of those things that you have to like you have to write that article to get people to watch it because if you yeah. look at the the cover of the DVD and you look at the name of it it just seems like any other fucking slasher movie and why would anyone give a shit <laughs> Well, and the other funny thing is, is uh, the other movie that comes out around this time, I, I always get years wrong, so I can't remember if it's the same year, year before, year after, but you have kind of the Fight Club syndrome, where you have people who can watch it and take one thing from it because they're paying attention to everything that's going on, and then you have the people who just watch it and are like, oh, I want to dress like this, I want to do these quotes, and are doing the bare minimum and, and have their message that they take from it. it it is, it is from the year before it is 99, but it is also amazing. Like, yeah, in, in terms of watching this and thinking about it in different ways, like the people, like the, the people that are like Kai Egan, the third are the same people that would have watched fight club and just seen Brad Pitt's abs and been like, I want to look like that. What's his workout <laughs> regimen look like? And you're like, okay, <laughs> which Christian Bale's uh, jump ropes. How do I get that jump rope? <laughs> which, um, uh, Christian Bale's shower scene at the start of the movie, uh, in the director's commentary, they do mention that like, uh, absolutely every woman on staff for that film showed up for that day at the shoot, uh, <laughs> which I, which I've always found cute. Like, I know it's, I know it comes off as, uh, sexist or, or what have you, but also like I would have been there too. Who doesn't want to see a 1998 oh, yeah. naked Christian Bale, <laughs> just, just well, applying I mean... various lotions. <laughs> Do you want that, or do you want to be the person who's who's showing up for a shower scene for the machinist a couple of years after? Well, definitely not that. No one wants to see that. Thing. <laughs> but I mean, that's we're we're at a point. I know so many people have different opinions on on Christian Bale and everything, but I I it's funny when you talk about body of work and that in Christian Bale you literally have to mention body of work because of how much he he transforms himself for for all these films and that he's you see him in this one and that he, he's going that extra mile to make sure that he's he's fitting everything that that would be exactly what how how Patrick Bateman would would hold himself to to a standard of uh what may pass as a human being right 
Now, the third question we ask, which is interesting when it comes to a movie like this, where you do have visuals that play uh, an importance, but then you also have the context that's with them. But what is it uh, that you think has helped this movie stay relevant over the years? Do you think it's specifically the message? Do you think it's the whole combination of, you know, set design, acting, and the message with it? Or or what do you think it is that, that people cling on to besides Guy Egan III? <laughs> I, I mean, the, the there is a strong aesthetic, which is one of the reasons that, like, I, I keep hoping that other Ellis stuff gets adapted because I just love cool 80s things. Like, I, I wish somebody would <laughs> remake Less Than Zero. I give that to Quentin Tarantino. Just let him have cool kids driving around in sunglasses doing coke. I, that's fine. I think that it is uh, partially in just how uh, how darkly funny it is. Like most people don't understand that it's what they're getting into is is a pretty straight comedy, uh, mm-hmm. and that even the dark, terrible things are really, really funny. Uh, so, like there there is an enduring uh, element of it that that shares in in other comedies i think i think that that's what gives it some weight uh but like also just like as as aforementioned just as a form of adaptation to take a thing written by a just incredibly shitty dude and turn it on its head like this uh is is one of those things that like you have to teach in schools you have to let people know like this is actually possible you can adapt the thing be true to the source material actually have the author be thrilled with you because he looks better and, and still turn in something that like will, will survive the ages. Like this movie is not getting canceled anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's because of the commentary that helps it work. Um, Now the next question, because I think it gets into uh, a larger um, conversation is that, is there a signature, is there a signature scene or moment uh, that you think, identifies what what makes this film so special one of my favorite moments in the film uh isn't actually uh in the film it's in you can find the deleted scene uh it's justin throw's character timothy bryce uh and it's (laughs) it's in a scene where they're uh in a nightclub and uh one of the one of the tropes uh, that happens throughout the film is that like especially in nightclubs patrick bateman is always trying to tell people like i'm 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 a murderer. And they're like, Oh, you're in mergers and, and executions and stuff. Like people can barely hear him, but they just want to nod and like, or maybe he's not even saying the things he thinks he's saying at all. Uh, so, <laughs> um, in the, the way that the scene ends when they, uh, after, uh, they're both hitting on some models, uh, is that throw actually does a bump of Coke and jumps from the balcony of this nightclub lands on the ground is unaffected because he's too coked up and like runs out the front door. And it's a scene that's so silly. I understand why they cut it because like Mm -hmm. the next scene is a weird murder. Uh, but like it's, a it's fascinating. Uh, it's just one of my fun ones. I, I do think, uh, like, uh, it, it's, it's the only real answer is that the, there is a, a sequence in this film where, uh, the, the men that are working together show each other, their new business cards. Uh, and it causes Patrick Bateman to have an internal breakdown that becomes physical where he's drenched in, in sweat and shaking and their business cards like them as people 
are completely the same. They look exactly the same with these slight, slight differences that, mm-hmm. that Patrick Bateman will notice, like the off-white coloring versus the color of bone versus like the, 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 the way that the, the version of, of the italicizing on it. And like, there, it, it's, it is like that scene in Parks and Rec where uh, Aziz Ansari can't believe that Jerry can't tell the difference between six different uh, shades of black. Like, no, Jerry, this one's Onyx. Like, it's, it's this level. Uh, it, it really it lets the audience know early and directly and in a fascinating way just how fucked this guy is. Because, he, mm-hmm. because he's capable of no emotions besides anger emptiness and and envy uh and so to watch how the envy leads to this destruction within him is it it really sets him up and also shows just how fucking pathetic he is like what a pathetic guy to have these issues but also everyone else in that room is clearly feeling equally bad about their cards after seeing paul allen's card and things like that (laughs) and there's there's an element that that is very funny in the book uh, that I wasn't cultured enough to understand the first time I read it, that, um, it, it starts to get into the film a little bit at various places. It, it doesn't go nearly as far as the book went, but basically, uh, Patrick Bateman loves to do album reviews and he loves to just write up a list of everything on a menu at the various high end restaurants that he's going to. And in the book, the the things he starts to describe start to become foods that aren't real uh and like i didn't i didn't understand because i don't know what all those french words mean and things like that (laughs) but at some point like it starts to describe like cuisine that can't possibly exist and like if if you were smart enough or rich enough to know that that would have been very funny and i i understand why it wasn't possible to really put that into the film in the same way but uh that that would equally show some slippage yeah i mean um to to get a sense of if you're somebody who hasn't read any of brady snell's books congratulations first of all um yes (laughs) i I think i think that's important to say um i i do think that if you are somebody who is an avid reader and you know was an avid reader anytime between you know the 80s to up until you know several years ago that you probably came across one of his books and the things that brock's describing if you're if you're not familiar with it are in all his books um while there's the foods that are in american psycho and glamorama there is i think it is 15 to 20 pages uh that is just the names of various different celebrities either movie uh, stars authors film directors writers reviewers um, who are on a guest list for the opening of a club and the main character <laughs> is being asked if they should invite them or not. And literally all it is is just a single space name followed by the next line is a yes or no or a short answer for literally like 15, 20 pages of just these people. That It's not just like, oh, he's he's doing this because he thinks it might be fun just for the book, but like that's just who he is as a person. And that's part of the reason trying to to do that and and transplant it to the screen um, is, is such a difficult thing. And it's why over the years, one of the moments that I've I've grown to appreciate that it's not my signature moment, but it's just something that I love is the scene where they're in um, the the place that um, 
I can't remember what it, but but it's the weird wood building where they 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 meet the couple that's dressed like the Cure, basically. And Justin Thoreau says, uh, "I can't read the menu. It's written in fucking Braille, and it's just a metal slab that has." the little etchings inside it. So you can barely make out the words and Christian's having to, to hold it up to even see like what's on the menu just felt like a commentary does just kind of a, uh, a flipping off a finger to, to all those passages that he does have in the book. That, that scene also includes uh, Patrick Bateman uh, going on a rant about all the things that we need to fix about the world. And it is so incredibly <laughs> yes. Trumpy in like, uh, it's just a list of things that need to be improved and it's said like in a soft way with a smile, but like there's, there's nothing there behind the eyes. He's just trying to say yeah. something to get people to like him. And it is, it is the equivalent of, of my always twirling, twirling towards freedom uh, from the Simpsons like that. It's, it's just a, a, a rant of, of emptiness of things that he clearly does not believe, but it gets everyone at mm. the table to sort of applaud him for his, forward-thinking political stance <laughs> now I, I know it sounds weird in a movie that that it falls under um you know the auspice of horror because horror can be so many different things and uh, the events in this movie either the actions of like you know um patrick as a person uh, are horrific and then of course he is a murderer uh, or you have the murders that are depicted upon screen the two signature moments that always stick out to me and, and i think grow um, each time are, are what helped define the film. Um, and one of them is Samantha Mathis when she's in bed um, right after she's uh, slept with uh, Patrick again. And she's mentioning, am I going to hear from you before Easter? And he's just rambling on boring little stuff, you know, and and just talking because she doesn't really mean a lot to him. And she's just a status symbol. And she keeps you know, mentioning little things about her life and about, Hey, if I don't hear from you by Easter, I hope you have a nice one. And that she's trying to reach out to him in, in, in this moment and be human. And basically it's her cry for help and basically saying, Hey, guess what? If I don't hear from you, if I don't see you from Easter, there's a good chance that I'm going to going to commit suicide. And that the, the people in the film that are generally like the most human, tend to be the female characters, you know, who have things to say, who have their ideals, and maybe they fall into these uh, positions that society says that they have to be in. Or in the case of um, uh, the redhead uh, girl that he was part of the circle who thinks he's, you know, Paul uh, from years ago, that she's trying to fit in with the men. So she's got less of that personality. But across the room, You've got uh, the prostitute, you know, who sees everything for how it actually is. And and those moments that are peppered throughout the film, uh, I, I think, are really important, but get tossed under uh, the bus. And the big one is Reese Witherspoon the, is the most powerful person in this movie. Yes. And to enter, enter uh, her little pig, her little piggly wiggly, as she calls it. A pot belly pig for, for Christmas, which also I haven't considered to this point how funny it is that somebody <laughs> asked Patrick Bateman what he was doing to celebrate Easter. Easter. Like, there's no one in that world that gives a shit about Easter. Like <laughs> they, uh, they they do, actually, because for, for lots of those people um, in the 80s and 90s, um, for those big yuppie types and everything, uh, holidays that, that were based upon... Uh, religious that they could throw parties for 
mattered to them. So something like Easter, because of the pastel colors that they already had for the different outfits that they would wear to the clubs, were important because they would all make sure that they were going to the same uh, big church for uh, for Sunday service that they knew that higher up people were going to to either make them feel like they belonged or make it it it, it they'd be able to get in a conversation with them and be like yeah you know we're having dinner over at blah 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 that for, for those people who might not be in the know or have had family members who were were in um, that position or place that unfortunately something like Easter is a big status symbol holiday for them because of all the appearances that they put on and because they basically get to dress up for it. Hey, look, look the fuck at you, Jay Gatsby. Um, I was, uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm the black sheep of, of the family. Um, on my uh, mom's side of the family, they, they did, um, and several of them still do have a considerable about amount of money. Whereas like for the majority of the time that I was raised, it was, you know, on my dad's side or, you know, just with my parents and, we weren't really a part of that. So when we moved to Kansas and saw it, it was uh, a terrifying I- experience because <laughs> we were, well, we were the ones who were viewed as basically the the others and the black sheep because we didn't, you know, fit in and we didn't know that, Hey, this is the certain way that you have to dress on, on certain holidays. And this is what's expected uh, of you. And at certain events on certain holidays, the children are not to be seen or heard because it's the adult time uh, to congregate and talk about business and stuff like that. So yeah, the uh, when it comes to that, like that's one of those weird little throwaways that that Easter might seem like a weird thing, but it's <laughs> it's it's yet again another thing. It, it's where are you going on Easter? What are you going to be doing? Who are you going to be with? Is just as important as um, when are you able to get a reservation at Dorcia? Dorcia, yeah, Easter at Dorcia. Must, they must have a good brunch. <laughs> Probably, there's a good chance. There's a good chance if they if they were able to get it. Uh, but the very end of the movie, the final little monologue um, that that he's having, where he has that that slight moment of catharsis, and it doesn't matter if if he's actually feeling anything for the first time and he's aware of everything in the world that, that he inhabits that it it doesn't matter because this is how things are and he can never escape it. And while all this going on, he has the, uh, the door that's perfectly framed (laughs) behind his head that has the little super literal thing, but, but it's so great because it's, you know, other directors and, and um, production designers probably wouldn't have it, but they have the little, gold plate that says that is this is not an exit yeah it's uh it's how the book ends too and like i i'm glad that they left it in because uh it doesn't feel heavy-handed it feels it feels like it's just appropriate for that like yeah yeah there's there's a different it, it is the the inverse of putting uh, like a title card that says the end at at the end of your movie <laughs> is to put a one that says this continues forever. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, now, the next question, I'm really interested to hear what your answer is. And that's, we usually ask everybody, you know, is is there, you know, a, a modern or contemporary film that's come out, you know, in the last however many years since this movie came out, um, that that is reminiscent of American Psycho? And what elements does that movie have that potentially make it just as good or worse in comparison to this movie? Let's see. Um, I guess 
I guess the sort of thing that I, I might consider this to be comparable to uh, in, in a very specific way, and, and it also uh, features Christian Bale, uh, is like the big short or, um, okay. or really any of, uh, any of Adam McKay's recent, like, I'm going to talk about a recent political issue type films like big short is perfect because it also shows that, you know, wall street people can do absolutely anything that they want. Uh, no one has to share reality. And at the end of the day, uh, not a single person will, will face repercussions. And like, it is, <laughs> It is, it is the same thing as this, like, obviously, like, uh, tone wise, there's, I, I think that this set a new bar for what a dark comedy could be. And like, there isn't much in, in the comedy horror world that, uh, that does this sort of thing for me. Uh, but like in, it, it is very difficult to peg the genre here because like you said, it's, it can be horror. Like there is axe murders and chainsaw murders like it it should feel like that but it is it is closer to like a period drama uh <laughs> that that just has a bunch of of really dark jokes in it and then occasionally blood uh so like even calling it a horror comedy doesn't really work because it's not like tucker and dale versus evil or something like that no. uh so yeah i i think the things that tackle Sort of uh, the housing crisis, the uh, the housing crisis collapse in two thousand and eight. Things that tackle uh, incredible government fuck ups uh, left and right. Anything, anything where it's shown that that being white and having money means that nothing will ever apply to you mm-hmm. feels like this. <laughs> Very true. Um, it is also I, like I th- the, one of the only cases in both literature and in films where. I find the unreliable narrator to work like there are just yes. so few yes. times because like you, uh, any movie that ends with like, Oh, I made this all up in my head or none of this ever happened is a, is a fucking cop out. I keep, there's not one of them that I like that kind yeah. of happens here, but because you have a choice between beliefs and that, and that, and that believing that the, there are repercussions should this have been made up, which, which implicate him as, as just sucking ass like that actually (laughs) like, and and like embarrassing him and embarrassing by extension, all of his masculinity and everything that he believes in. Like it, if that is the twist that you go with, it just makes everything that came before it so much better. Uh, so Mm -hmm. yeah, there, there are very few films that can put together some of these devices in the same way and certainly none that really have this genre crossover, which again might be part of, of what makes it what it is now. I, and I think that's why it's, it's grown over the years. Cause I mean, if you, you can like piece together several movies, uh, that mash up, make something like this, you know, where, where you can be like, yeah, it's like you, if you took, parts of uh, uh, the wolf of wall street and you put it together with henry portrait of serial killer then, sure. then you, you you can do that but i mean you to to choose like one is is difficult like you have movies that maybe yeah leonardo dicaprio did tone. get to eventually make american psycho it just took more than 20 years <laughs> exactly um but i mean you, you can find movies that have characters that kind of have um uh, elemental qualities to it like like uh choosing something like um uh 
one of the ones that came up. I mean, it's not completely the same, but thinking of like character wise would would be um, a piercing that that came out what a year or two ago. I want to say. Oh right. Because like Christopher Abbott's character definitely has some some Christian Bale or uh, you know of of the Pat the Patrick Bateman type qualities. Um, but you were mentioning that you know the Brett Easton Ellis of it all, and you look at the the movies that are adapted of his works in the future, and when he becomes uh, directly you know attached to some of them, and how completely different <laughs> they are. You know, Right. You know, um, just a couple of years after this, you have rules of attraction, which he, he's not involved in. But it's it's taking, you know, another unwieldy story and fashioning uh, it into something, um, which, of course, has another Bateman. So you can see how wonderful and chipper their world is just in general. Uh, there was a, they tried have... to do a scene where Patrick and him talked on the phone and uh, Christian Bale was unavailable. <laughs> And so they actually shot it, and it was Casper Van Dien, and they cut it out of the movie. Really? Didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> it's it's one of those really, really weird trivia pieces that somewhere out there, somebody might have like access to the footage, but we'll never see it. And then the screenwriter of that movie was drunk and killed a person on New Year's Eve by hitting them with a car. So That's why I did not mention their name at all. So <laughs> that's, why, that's why we also don't talk about Beowulf. Um but he has silent hill <laughs> it's still no still no um, <laughs> with with Brett Easton Ellis you you have several years later um an adaptation of the informers um which the way that movie comes off is kind of the opposite of something like uh American psycho that's not it's not questioning things as much as American psycho is and putting the context to it it's just um you know, taking the 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 text as 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 being you know one hundred percent unassailable and the only thing that you can follow, and it's it's detrimental to trying to make a film like that. And of course, the last feature that Brett Brett Easton Ellis was directly <laughs> you know, you involved were right with in. Brett Ellis. <laughs> I mean, it, it, te- it technically fits because the last one that he was involved with was uh, the the Canyons with. Um, What's her face? Lindsay Lohan. That, that's all I got about that. I didn't want to talk about that one anymore. I just wanted to let them know that, that that's how he was directly involved in stuff and that the, the work definitely goes downhill. Right. Well, and, and as does his, um, as does his writing work, uh, which if you ever want to read anything of his, uh, pick up less than zero, the very first one. It's about 100 mm-hmm. pages long. No chapter is longer than a page. I love it and still think it's wildly funny. Uh, and w- while also being uh, some of his darkest work, uh, it, it it shows you why he got to be who he is. But now he's reached the point where his last book was called White, and it's his first nonfiction book. And it's just a bunch of crazy right-wing ranting about stuff. Like, he's he's that guy who says snowflakes about everything now. And he has a, he has a podcast where he does that like he became everything that he railed against uh for for 30 years and like it it's it's caused him to fall so low that uh in the on the author bio at the back of the new book it actually uh links to his gofundme and i was just like oh Oh, no it's uh, it's his patreon for the subscription to the podcast i was just like that's 
you have fallen to a place, my dude, and you deserve every bit of it. Uh, yeah, because I know that he he said that in an interview. I don't know if it was supposed to make his title sound better or not, but that he mentioned that the original um, title of his most recent book was "White Privileged Male." I, and I, then he's like, been a "No, I'm just going to condense it to one." <laughs> well, when when I saw it called "White" and it's just a white cover, I thought, "Okay, it's just a book about cocaine." Yeah. Actually, I, I, I will revise my earlier statement. If there is a if there is a Brady Snell's book that you read, pick up a book that he wrote in 2005 called Lunar Park. Lunar Park. Oh uh, no! Is, is a haunted house book starring Brett Easton Ellis and his family, and the first 80 pages of it are basically an autobiography of his life that captures him slipping into being a sad paunchy alcoholic with no friends and and captures like everything about like that brat pack thing from the other like it's it's his whole life story and then it sort of twists into this place that becomes fictionalized that winds up with him marrying keanu reeves's ex-fiance and they start a family and they move to the east coast and he becomes a professor at a small college out there but then uh Patrick Bateman starts hunting him and like there's a haunted Furby in his house. And like, I fucking love it. I fucking love every page of it. <laughs> the 80 pages of him just dunking on himself is so fucking good. And then there's a whole cool haunted house story. And I actually like one of my first gigs in LA was getting to work very briefly on like an adaptation of it uh, for a screenplay. <laughs> And it turned out like eight different people had been hired and then the production company working on it like sort of shut down. But like uh, it is it is just such a wild ride. And the thing about it that, that makes me so angry is that those those first 80 pages where he just shits on himself unrelentingly, even in a fictional way, uh, but also in like a history of what a piece of shit he's been way. It's it, it is it is for me like watching the, uh, the film Funny People where you see Adam Sandler make fun of all the dumb shit movies that Adam Sandler <laughs> has made. And you're like, wow, this guy is making a piece of art that is a revelation about himself and how he needs to grow. And then he immediately gets like a Netflix deal to start churning out shit again. And you're like, but you yep. made a movie about how, you know, like Brett Easton Ellis wrote this thing about how he knows. And then just went right back to sucking shit. And you're like, I don't understand <laughs> I don't understand how you have have the epiphany and then de-epiphanize. It's just so hard. <laughs> it's because he's just trying to be a human being as opposed to just being a human being. Right. He's 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 Patrick Batemaning it. Uh... So I I do have to ask before we get to the final question, uh what side do you come down on uh with with Patrick? Do you do you think that he has that it's all in his head. Do you think that a part of it's in its head or do you think that he is indeed uh 100% killing all these people? Um, you know, I, I used to always think that it was definitely that he was just this loser piece of shit. Um, and I think that it has been the evolution of becoming more woke in, in the last few years and becoming more involved in societal problems that is the the i think the better reading now is is the one about just how 
he'll never face consequences no matter what happens. Like there's there's plenty of things that indicate like that probably isn't what happened, but also like all white men being interchangeable and all white men never having to face consequences. Like it, it, it tracks in a way now that like, I, I think perhaps in college, I, I just, I, I did not believe. And now that you look at society and you look at, especially the last 10, 15 years of, of what we've been through, that, that reading means more, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if the, I don't know if it lines up as, as easily as the other one does. And certainly like either way, I, I like it's a condemnation of, of, of things that are, that are parts of our society that we need to move beyond. It, it, yeah. if it, if, if he made it up and it's just about internalized toxic masculinity, sure. Good. Let's dunk on him for that. But, but the <laughs> other one feels like equally plausible to me at this point. And that's, Part of, I think, why my appreciation of the film continues to grow. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's I from th- this most recent rewatch of it, it feels like it's a little bit of all these that there's several murders that he that he did uh, commit because of you know th- that bloodlust that he feels like he needs to um, to try to consume in, in some way to to feel like he's uh, alive that's like the worst form of advanced cutting that you could possibly have but, but at the same time there's there's you know uh, a commentary on um uh, as you said because he's interchangeable you know and he he has the privilege of of being white and in power with money that he's you know never going to have to face the consequences but at the same time because of that being the way that he's viewed and because of the station that he has, no one can see the problem that he actually has. Cause we see earlier in the film that, you know, he has that bottle that he is taking medication for something. They never show us what it is. So we don't exactly know what condition he has, but we know that there's something there. So you also have the commentary on, you know, somebody who is mentally ill. And when they realize that they're having the breakdown and they're asking for, help uh, because of how they're views by everyone else and because of the people that they surround themselves with that they you know that that no one's actually trying to help them of course that once again it's you know the the female character and his secretary played by chloe 70 who is the one who feels that something's off about him and that maybe he needs help or might be sick who you know goes and does a little bit of digging and is like oh shit this is far gone and that it has all these different elements that it's not just the one thing uh, th- that identifies you know what it is that makes him such a, a, a broken person or monster or such a, a a terrifying individual that it's all these components in, in this broken person that can never right. be whole because of uh, of the form uh, because of how terrible society is and they chose to buy into this form of society that they now have to suffer the cons- the consequences while never being held responsible for their actions which is just terrible <laughs> it's not very good now is it <laughs> no no <laughs> cuz i mean once it, once you think about that side of it you're just like oh just all of this is is just no 
no, because you, you could look at it, you know, easily, like you, you mentioned, where the people are like, ah, oh, yeah, it's got the funny quips and and there's these crazy scenes and everything. But like the, the more you sit with it and more you watch it and, and and the more you internalize it, you're like, oh, all of this is just very, very bad. But also the quips are really fucking funny. So like, <laughs> <laughs> you can have your cake and eat it, too. Truly with this film. <laughs> So the final question that we ask everybody is having recently rewatched this film for it's probably the umpteenth time. Is it still worthy of the reverence or do you think that, you know, the luster and sheen is slowly being wiped away? I don't think it came out to luster and sheen. I think it came out post 9-11 to a world that wasn't particularly interested in it uh, and wasn't ready to deal with some of the things. I, I, I feel like it came out and was treated like a horror film and uh it it took long enough and it took enough think pieces and it took enough word of mouth for people to eventually get around to realizing this is uh something much different <laughs> <laughs> but 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 you you still think it it's it's worthy of of the of the place that it's kind of found itself in over the last 20 years with the cult and the people who are writing all these pieces and and, and are championing it as a film that, that people should definitely be going out of their way to, to watch. I, I absolutely do. And I also like, there is a part of me, especially having seen her speak twice in the last year in person. I, I kind of want to ask Gloria Steinem if she likes the movie after convincing <laughs> DiCaprio not to do it. Because if you see what, what Heron turned out, like, I don't know. I think that it is something that, uh, it, it it's feminism. It wears plainly on its sleeve and it, it gets a little better with that every year, I think. And like, yeah, I think Gloria Steinem probably maybe likes the movie after uh, leading the, the charge to have it banned across the country. So I don't know. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it deserves its spot. It deserves to be exactly where it is in the pantheon. And I don't see it ever losing that that spot until something attempts to do much much better with this and i don't know who's out there trying to do that right now (laughs) (laughs) and if you totally disagree with what was just said you can easily find us at uh at horversary on twitter and come yell at us there don't don't yell at brock on on his his twitter Um, i'm i'm happy to have a conversation about it at any time i i I respect all views on this film If, (laughs) if, if you consider it to still be misogynistic trash I can see that reading of it, and you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I would no, also, I th- if, also, if you're not a man, I I listen to you on this subject ahead of me. This is where I fall. <laughs> please, yes, yes. And if you're um, whatever Egan the Third, please reach out to us too and let us know how you feel about American Psycho now. Um, so th- there's a final question that we've been doing with everybody. That's in addition to you know the fifth one, uh, because we're we're still at a point where theaters aren't exactly open i mean just this last week you've had cinemark being like yeah we're bringing you all these classic movies that you absolutely love like the dark knight and and the the avengers and several disney animated movies and bloodshot so um we're still gonna be it's but i don't understand why like theaters are like here's these movies and bloodshot it's like no out of the things that last hit theaters that's not the one that you need to be put back. Put fucking Emma or something in there. You well, know? yeah, That's actually number one at the box office this last week was Jurassic Park, and number two was Jaws. And it's like, 
sure, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. But but I mean, we're not going to have you know super new movies for a period of time. So the question that I've been asking everybody who's been coming on is: Are there three films that you want to suggest to people uh, to seek out? You know, whether you know it's renting, um, which they can do from like their library or streaming, like that. Just three films that you think don't get enough attention that people should take this time at home to seek out and watch. Oof. Um, let's see. King of Staten Island. Absolutely. Uh, as, as far as Apatow films go, it's really good. I, I have a weird soft spot for Pete Davidson. Uh, so that helps. Uh, oh, and, and another thing that helps is that it's co-written by, uh, one of my best friends from the, uh, stand-up scene in Los Angeles. <laughs> I was just like, ah, his, his debut is a giant Apatow film with Pete Davidson. Good, 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 good. Uh, so that's it. Um, are, are you talking only the new films that people need to no, check no, out? No, it could be it could be anything. I mean, we're we're sitting here and we're talking about a movie from twenty years ago that there's still people who are going to be like, "Oh, American Psycho." I haven't checked that out. So, anything from any point in time. Yeah, um, I, I Emma Emma that you brought up already was uh, one that I. Uh, yeah, gosh, that's a good one. Uh, wasn't ready to uh, enjoy that one on the scale that uh, that I did, but that was uh, that was really cool. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I, I <laughs> oh, um, uh, the Beach House, uh, which is coming out July sixth. Uh, okay, I, I highly recommend that one. It's something that would have been at Panic Fest. It's from the uh, it's from the people that brought you uh, Michael Shannon's Take Shelter. Okay. Uh, and it is a very weird, a little bit body horror, but mostly just hazy dreamlike movie that then has some elements of like the mist at some point. It's, uh, it goes some places and I find it fascinating and it's a big, beautiful, weird ass movie. So that's July 6th. It was supposed to be July 3rd and then they were like, we don't want to get lost in the holiday weekend. Uh, and so, that's when Hamill film comes out now. So. Yeah, we we were taking uh, the third off from work because uh, that's the Friday, and I was like, "Oh, is that so everyone can watch Hamilton on Disney Plus?" Yeah. And everyone was like, "No, it's for the Fourth of July." I was like, "I I was doing a I was doing a bit, <laughs> doing a bit, you guys." <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, uh, I, I I think uh, one of the best things that you can do right now is to check out wherever you are, uh, your local. Uh, indie theater, a lot of indie theaters, uh, through their website right now are doing rentals of especially Indian foreign films where they're getting the profits from the rental. Uh, we, we've got that here in town too at uh, screenlandonline.com. That's been a great way to find a bunch of movies that I never would have watched or given a shit about mm-hmm. and to know that I'm helping to make sure that my friend's theater will remain open. Uh, that matters. So, so I'll watch it's, a Brazilian thriller uh, with subtitles that I probably wouldn't have in my lifetime and then be like, wow, I'm glad that I did that. And I feel like a good person. <laughs> and, um, as, as we move on through, through the rest of the year, um, it's something that you're going to see a lot of, different movie festivals that, that maybe seem like they were something that you, you couldn't get into, you know, that it it was going to be, you know, too expensive. So going was going to be unattainable that 
we're living in a world where all these formats are, are moving, you know, to digital, at least for this year. Uh, you just had Chattanooga that did that. You've got Fantasia that's doing I it. I missed for a... Chattanooga doing it. And I just saw the tweets uh, like later. And I am so angry that I did not take part in that. And also Beach House played there. Uh, so that like that's uh, that hard when I saw like Matt Modigal's like tweets about it and being like, this is one of my favorite movies of the year and being like, OK, well, I'm chomping at the bit now to see this weird ass thing. <laughs> well, it, the, the nice thing is outside of Fantasia, unless you're somebody who's listening from, you know, Canada, and in which case, hello, thank you. Um, <laughs> but there's going to be different ones. Like I know that TIFF at the time that we're recording this, TIFF just came out, which is the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, a couple days ago came out saying that they are moving to a 50 50 format this year and that they are going to be doing 50% that's in-person screenings with theaters that, you know, have social distance rows marked off and everything. Um, and then 50% of it's going to be online. Uh, they haven't mentioned that if they're going to be doing badges, but Chattanooga kind of threw the gauntlet down with the way they were doing it and the way that it was well-received and they were only $30 for, for people to be able to get access. So I think there's going to be nice. a chance that I, I think you're going to have a component, you know, for something like TIFF or something like uh, fantastic fest and a couple other film festivals that roll out at the end of the year that are going to have an online component um, that that's a really good way to be able to watch these films that are going to be, uh, you know, trying to scramble over the next couple of months to try to find distribution because they would normally have these theatrical experiences that, that would help get them deals that they, they might not have this year. So that's, I think going to be a good way for the rest of the year to, to be able to, to see a whole bunch of upcoming films that we'll hopefully be recording podcasts about, you know, in 10 years from now, if podcasts are still a thing, I was late getting into this. So I might still be doing it in 10 years when it's no longer cool. <laughs> um, but I wanted to stop being cool already. I, well, I worry about that for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, you are somebody who has a hand in various different podcasts. So what are some of the podcasts that you're involved with that people can easily find online? Uh, much like you, uh, life recently has uh, thrown the fucking monkey wrench into creative stuff and uh, things like this. Uh, so uh, if you're going to check out something, uh, Streetwise is a podcast that we put out every Friday from Pitch, uh, where I work. Uh, we uh, read a, a recent story or two. We interview people from the community, uh, and we always have some cool local music. Uh, so this has been one of my favorite projects to do in a while. And a lot of the other ones are uh, are, are sort of on hold. I, I have one about the video game series Silent Hill, and my co-host can only record uh, by going into a, a nearby college in Boston. And that thing is not opening up anytime this year. So like <laughs> not, not much we can do about that. <laughs> well, oh, yeah, but my, I mean, pe oh, uh, people can still go back and sign up for that is, is very much active. Uh, it's carrying into the void. It is a bite sized, dark positivity podcast. I run, run with a friend, Jordan Shiverly. Uh, and, uh, he, he, him and I each uh, week, uh, just share a, a weird ass story from the world. Uh, <laughs> write a little bit of poetry about it. That's supposed to inspire you. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's a, it's a little spooky and a little funny and a little like, uh, gosh, we're here to support you. Uh, and then we usually, uh, vent about what's holding us back creative creatively and, uh, what we're doing to overcome it. So that's, uh, that's a pretty good one too. <laughs> 
I, I think I think that's a really good one, and and um, I, I was hoping that you mentioned that one because I mean, even if there's a you you go off for a couple of weeks and you don't have a couple episodes, I I think it's one that people can go back and listen to previous episodes, and and especially in a time like these that you know when you're able to to hear someone and 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 commiserate and be like, oh, somebody kind of understands, you know, something I'm going through, and then have that burst of positivity in there, I I think is is really good at a time like this. All of our content is very evergreen, but also we've been delayed on getting episodes out because Jordan lives in Minneapolis, right in the center of where all the shit's gone down. So when uh, when the houses up the street are burning, I can't get him to come have a fun, wacky time over podcasts with me. So exactly. we're getting back it's to it soon. When the void is right outside your front door. <laughs> when you wish it was the void so the fire could just go into the void. <laughs> Now, Brock, you mentioned at the top of the show, but where can everyone find you online? I'm at Brock Wilbur on all social media platforms and uh, come read our work at thepitchkc.com and uh, subscribe to this show. Adrian's work is fantastic. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. Um, Speaking of the show, you can easily find us on uh, Twitter at uh, my Twitter specifically is Yo Adrian Torres, where I've been in the middle of June exploitation. So if you want lots of weird and wacky, wonderful suggestions for films, check that out. This one is at Horrorversary. Uh, we will post about when we have the shows coming up. We will retweet a whole bunch of other shows that you should be listening to. Um, we recorded a whole bunch of shows just so we could have this backlog to, and then everything got crazy so thankfully we had a whole bunch of episodes out in the ether um one that i really want people to go back and listen to which i think is great um and it's by one of my favorite guests who deserves all the attention in the world at all times and so if you 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 like their stuff seek them out um hire them to do stuff is the episode that we did a couple episodes back for ginger snaps in which we had meredith borders on and that was a really great discussion. Um, Hopefully by the time this airs, Meredith will have landed on her feet as will Scott and everybody else that we care about. Exactly. Exactly. But, but it was just a really good conversation. And I, I think about not only the conversation, but just how, uh, you know, ginger snaps along with this movie are, are two films that, that I think really deserve a larger audience and while American psycho definitely is there. It feels like ginger snaps is starting to get there more with the mainstream. Uh, there, there's some weirdness with werewolf movies that people have that, that it takes them longer to uh, latch onto. It, it, it feels like, so definitely give that episode uh, a listen, but we're going to have content coming out every single week. So we're available everywhere. So let people know we are on, um, iTunes, we are on Spotify, we are on SoundCloud, we are on Google Podcasts, we're on TuneIn, um, basically any single place that you can find podcasts, we are on there. Just search for either Horrorversary, one word like it sounds, or Boom Howdy, um, and you'll end up finding Horrorversary on there. So as I say at the end of every episode, until next time, please be nice to each other. <laughs>